Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us and your encouragement to us. Lord, help us to receive your word through Shunu right now. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, it's very nice to be with you. I, I don't think I've preached here in a long time, actually, so this is um, a real treat for me, let me just say, in advance. Oh, thank you, thank you. There's this theologian called John Walton, and he says about Scripture, he said, Scripture is written not to us, but for us. Okay? It's not written to us, but it's written for us. And we are invited to stand and listen to the stories of Scripture and allow the Holy Spirit to let their stories inform our story. And I mean your and your and your personal story. And we are being invited into other people's lives, lives who the Holy Spirit was working with and in, in order that you can be enriched in your life. So I'm going to just briefly recap, because I know you've been doing one and two Corinthians. I presume you've done one Corinthians also. No, you haven't done one Corinthians. Okay, so I'm going to give you a paraphrased version, okay? There was this church in Corinth. We're told in Acts 18, a church planted by the Apostle Paul. And he loved them dearly. They may not have been grand and big, but Corinth was a very fashionable city. And he had worked hard. And he very, they were very dear to his heart. And when he went away, he discovered a report came to him telling him that actually things had gone rather badly wrong. There had been sexual immorality. There had been fighting between people. One of the real ways they were fighting was they were saying, well, actually, I like that leader, and I don't like that leader, and I'm joining with that leader, and that they weren't being very kind to each other. They, when there were people who didn't have food, the people who wanted to eat it first ate it first. Their worship was chaotic. So there was all of this going on, and as a result... Paul wrote a letter to them to correct all of this stuff. And it seemed like things got better. But then Timothy went. One of his co-workers went to them. And the report back was, Corinth is a train wreck. It is a total train wreck. And this is the church he loved so dearly. And he thought to himself, do you know what? I better go. He went to Corinth. And what he tells us is that it wasn't fun for him. In fact, it was extremely painful. And the reason why it was extremely painful was that they really despised him. Something had happened along the way. They had no love for him. 
They despised him. In fact, they were embarrassed by him. They were embarrassed because he was a bit poor, because he followed Jesus and he'd given up everything. They were embarrassed by him because he was someone who suffered and experienced anxiety and anguish. Well, hey, you know, my goodness, if you went through all he did, you probably would. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed of him. And it says, he writes saying, it was a really painful visit. And the worst thing was that they said that he didn't have any integrity. And he said, and, I, you know, and they despised me because I wasn't a very good speaker. You, know, you don't imagine the Apostle Paul not being a very good speaker. He said that. They despised me for all these reasons. But what he did was that he then went away and he wrote them a stonkingly severe letter. Do you know, we don't have that stonkingly severe letter. It's disappeared somewhere in the mists of time. But he told them off so severely. And then what happened was, the person who took this letter was Titus. But they responded to that letter. And they responded in a way that there was a turnaround. It was quite extraordinary. And one of the problems that had been going on in Corinth had been the fact that there had been other people who'd come in and said, who were really shiny public speakers, who were great orators, who talked in wonderful ways. And the people had attached themselves to these people. But what had happened was that through this letter Paul wrote, it had this huge impact. And they had turned around. And what we're going to read, I'm going to read the whole passage to you because when we think of Paul, we often think of him as very cerebral, but this is full of emotion. Okay? He, wasn't ashamed to, he wasn't ashamed about his emotions. So we're going to read together um, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 7, 2 Corinthians 7, and I want you not to worry about what it all means. I want you to feel what he felt to experience a bit of his emotions. Nigel read the first bit, but I will just go through it, and then I'm going to come back to a part of it shortly. Okay, I'm going to start from verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you, I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds." For when we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me. 
your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourself how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. Actually, let's not leave, read the last bit. Can we go back to the earlier slide? Um, and we'll leave it up there. Can you see it's just full of emotion? You can't escape from that. It's full of emotion. And you see, what really bugged Paul was that the Corinthians had actually ceased to value who he was in any way. That really bugged him. That actually, they really, they had, they, it must have been a very painful thing for him to experience. Um, and they had turned their face to others. Now, I thought, because Paul dared to be so personal and tell you about how he deeply felt... I thought I could at least tell you a bit of my own story. Um, because I actually quite identify with the Corinthians, actually. And the reason why I identify with the Corinthians is that in my 20s, I was the sort of person who spoke at lots of big Christian conferences. I was one of those people on that scene year in, year out, for many years. And, you know, various other nice committees and all the rest of it. And one day, I was at a wonderful couple called John and Yvonne Presdy's house. And John Presdy looked, turned to me and he very gently said, Shunu, you have lost your way. I wasn't in any great sin in terms of what you class as sin. And he said it very gently, but he was right. 
The other way I identify with the Corinthians is that one of the lessons that I have had to learn very painfully over the years is that I am very susceptible to fine words. I like words. Words are powerful. God is logos. He is a living word. Words embody more than just a few syllables. They embody life. And they are very powerful. And I am the sort of person who could never believe anything other than the words. It was like, I just believed the words. The power of the words had a huge impact on me. It never occurred to me that words could be used in ways that lead you astray, that you could follow the wrong thing. It never occurred to me that words... I mean, it's a bit stupid, isn't it? Because after all, there's a world of politicians out there, isn't there? It's not hard to work out that words, even words in the church, you know, things you're taught, they can have this effect on you. And I never really could get behind the words. It was like, but the words said it. They said this. They said this. Until one day, you know, God is very good the way he talks, in that he talks to us all individually. And God, the way God often talks to me is he gives me a word. A word that sums up and encapsulates a common behavior. And the word he gave me was dissembling. Now that's a strange word, isn't it? And the word dissembling, what the word dissembling means is this. It means to conceal or disguise one's true feelings. Because we all do that, don't we? So it's not totally wrong, because I can't dump all my feelings on you whenever. So it's quite right at some point. But I was very vulnerable to any dissembling. And God wanted to show me that those words actually are very powerful because they are connected to far more than what the dictionary definition means, that behind them is something spiritual, behind them is power. Now, this was, was what was happening to the Corinthians. And do you know what Paul said to them? Paul said, and this is the lesson I found very difficult to learn and really have taken me years and years to learn. He said, look at me. Look at my life. Look at how I behave. There is no mismatch between the gospel I preach and the life I live. It is the definition of the word integrity. I'm not saying look at my life. Look at Paul. Because he in turn was speaking on behalf of his master before him, our Lord Jesus. And he said, look at my life. There is only one way. I suffer because that is the way of the cross. I endure hardship because that is the way of the cross. 
I experience pain because that is the way of the cross. And I am neither ashamed of my emotions, nor am I ashamed of the life I lead. I am poor. I am a jobbing tent maker. That is the way of the cross. I am following the one who called me. Now, to be attracted to beautiful words and beauty is not wrong because something in us is worship. We worship lovely things. And it is easy to be susceptible. And the thing that God has had to teach me over many years is Shunu, and you can't do it of, of an instant, a particular instant. He said, Shunu, look at the actions. Look at the behavior. Don't just listen to the words because you get charmed by the words. You're always charmed by the words. Look at the behavior. And C.S. Lewis made a very interesting point. He said, if you want to know what someone is like, ask the question, what will they do next? So basically he's saying, you can't do it in an instant. But over a period of time, ask the question, what do they do? So I was just using one sense, my hearing. And God was saying, Shunu, I've given you more senses than that. Why is it not matching up? Why are the words and the behavior not matching up? But you see, Paul was like a stick of rock. The same message went through every part of him. And that same message was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it went right the way through him, which is why he is not ashamed to throw his emotions on the page, on a page for us to hear years and years later. Because he knows it matches up. I can't do that. He knows it matches up. Now, what I want to do is I want to look not for too long, at this particular passage because um, I want to ask us ourselves the question, how did these people turn themselves around? Because it's got to be practical, isn't it? We're not here to have some cerebral exercise. We're here to live lives as followers of Jesus and to engage in that on a daily basis. So we're going to look at this particular set of verses, and I've highlighted them, because they've created some questions for me as I read through it. Firstly, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Do you know what? As I read that, I thought, what the heck is the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow? In reality, I barely know what my emotions are telling me, let alone can I differentiate between what is godly sorrow and what is ordinary sorrow. And I have to say, when I looked a bit more through Scripture, you know, can you tell the difference Jesus said, if you hate in your heart, it's as good as murder. But if you do not hate mother, father, brother, sister to take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. There must be something in the experience of hate that has both a light and a dark side. There must be something in the experience of sorrow that has both a light and a dark side. 
And it isn't so completely obvious how you know. The other two things that I will, as I was thinking about this passage, crossed my mind is, you know, you hear a word like rejection and you think, it's bad. Is it always bad? God rejected Cain's sacrifice right at the beginning. How do you know what's right between good and bad rejection? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? We live in a therapeutic age. Everything is bad, frankly. And we get muddled. So how can I possibly distinguish? Because these people here experienced godly sorrow rather than a sorrow that led to death. Now, in order to understand that, I want us to jump to the little bit at the bottom, which is bizarre. If you read it closely again, you'll realize it is utterly bizarre. Now, if you read it in the message, it isn't bizarre because they've they've taken the bizarreness out of it. But listen to this. But rather that you that but rather that before God you could see for yourself how devoted to us you are. Why does that sound odd to you? Any thoughts? It's not pointing to Paul, is it? What is it saying? You need to see, but rather that before God, you could see something about yourself of how devoted to us you are. The more you say it, the more confusing it gets. Believe me, it's in the NASB, it's in the NIV, it's in the translations. And I, I did go to, I did, I mean, I didn't look at this verse in, um, in the interlinear, but I just, and I could see that in the Living Bible they've got rid of it. But there was, because frankly, it's weird. It's saying all this godly sorrow you're experiencing has led you to know something about yourself and about what your devotion is and what your love is. Not about how much you love me, Paul, me who is Paul. He's saying it's how much of yourself you know. This has taught you to learn how devoted to us you are, that you've seen it for yourself. It's just weird, anyway. So I did think about it. I'm getting muddled as I, as I read it out. But as I, as I read it several times, I was thinking, who writes that? That is such a weird thing to write. But what I think, and again, you know, I am not saying thus says the Lord. I'm saying, you know, Join in my journey and take what you can from it. But um, what I think is really interesting is in the previous chapters, what Paul has really emphasized is the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant is all about doing the right thing. It's kind of black and white. The new covenant is all about your heart. It's all about what's written deeply on your heart. It's quite different. It's about something far more profound than saying, do you know, we did wrong, and so we're going to stop doing wrong. Well, I 
the old and the new covenant are not contradictory. So actually, if you know you've done something wrong, I think we should stop doing wrong. But this is far more profound. He isn't saying that. He's saying you need to know something about yourself. And this is what the new covenant is about. Now, interesting, it's not you need to know something about God, but you will learn something about yourselves. Now, what is that about? And this is my final point. As I've thought about this and just traveled through life, one of the things in my home is that I have a very dark kitchen. And the great thing about a dark kitchen is that you don't see the dirt. (laughs) And if I don't turn the lights on, I don't see the dirt. And there's plenty of grease under the cooker. And I'm very happy not to see it. So in my dark kitchen, (laughs) provided I keep the lights off, I don't see the dirt. I don't see the dirt I've created. Now, just let me before I just let me recap so that we're doing this logically. We're thinking about how you how you know the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. How you know the difference between hating in your heart and um, and uh, the right sort of hate. How, how do you know these things? These are fine tunings of, of um, what's going on in this. How do we know these things? It's somehow linked to a knowledge of yourself. So that's where the logic is going. There are these things that are difficult to understand and it's somehow linked to the knowledge of yourself. And it's picked up in this verse. So in my kitchen, if I don't turn the lights on, I don't see the dirt. One of the things that I have learnt, and I haven't learnt it very well, but I am learning it, is this. If you turn the lights on with God, and that means you invite him to shine into your life, what you learn about yourself is that you are unconditionally loved. You cannot learn you are unconditionally loved until you turn the lights on. Because how do you know it? It's not a theoretical proposition, is it? It is only when you turn the lights on and God shines his light into your heart that you know that he doesn't walk away from you. You know that he might actually like you. You know that he might consider you his friend. You don't have a way of knowing you're unconditionally loved by God. I don't think, until you turn the lights on. And what I think this verse means is the Corinthians learnt something about themselves. 
they learnt that actually, deep in the core of their being, they loved the God who loved them. They loved the God who died for them. They loved the God who went via the cross. And the glory that Paul talks about, and it is a glory, the glory he talks about is a glory not of knowing God. That is not the end story. That really is not the end story. The glory he talks about, he he wrote in 1 Corinthians, and these are the words he he, um, he wrote. Do you know? I can't find it. Um, It is not that we know God, but that we are known by God. That is what it is about. It is not that you know God, but that you are known by God. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is the the verse that I wanted to read to you from um, Hebrews. It is, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrows, thoughts and intentions, in whose presence nothing is hidden. How do we differentiate between godly sorrow and sorrow that leads to death? How do we differentiate between right hatred and wrong hatred? How do we know all of those things? We know because we let, we turn the lights on and we have a Holy Spirit who is as gentle as the Spirit of, who is the Spirit of Jesus, who actually doesn't walk away from us and all our dirt. And he doesn't condemn us. And it is only then you can fulfill the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself till you know you are loved. Because otherwise, what are you loving them? In what way are you loving them? In the imperfect way and the bad ways you think about yourself. Not great. Doesn't work. And so this is such a terrific, terrific outpouring of a man who utterly understood the new covenant. That here is a God who when you turn the lights on, what you discover is he came to serve you, to redeem you, but probably most of all, for you to value yourself and know that you are loved. Because there is no great commission without it. And so, you know, I didn't like Paul much before I read this. It's funny down the years. But actually, I am so amazed at this man. I think of his emotional life, his stick-of-rock life that is so the same all the way through. And no wonder he was so passionate that they didn't miss the message for people who peddled something different in the face of the reality of a God who actually says, do you know what? I like you. And do you know what? I want you to be able to say that you like yourself. And I want you to be able to say that not only 
Do you like yourself? You know that God loves you very, very much.